Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Rosenthal. Luke chapter 7 records a surprising and unexpected scene. While languishing in his prison cell, John the Baptist experiences what we might be tempted to call a crisis of faith. This was the same individual who, less than a year earlier, stood on the banks of the Jordan River, pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On that occasion, there was no doubt or hesitation at all in his voice. Jesus of Nazareth was being singled out and identified as Israel's true Messiah. But in Luke 7, when John's disciples came to visit him in prison, they reported to him many of the things that Jesus had been doing throughout the region. And yet, rather than rejoicing over this news, John decided to send two of his disciples over to Jesus in order to ask the following question, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look? For another. At one point during his ministry, Jesus said of John, Among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater. So, in a sense, Jesus was saying that apart from himself, John was actually the greatest man who ever lived up until that time. And yet in Luke 7, we find this great man at his weakest moment. But how can this be? Was John the Baptist an inspired prophet or was he not? And if he was, how would it be possible for him to have a crisis of faith? John the Baptist in Luke 7 sends his disciples to Jesus saying, Go ask him if he's really the one. Mm -hmm. Isn't he the guy that preached the sermon? Behold the Lamb? He seems like he's doubting the words of his own sermon. Yeah. What do you do with that? Is he a prophet or not? That's a good question. I've never really thought of that. Do you think it's wrong to question God? Is that a bad thing? I think it could be. Because when you start to question God and doubt him, it's almost like taking pride in yourself. And pride is sinful. If you're anything like me, you've likely had times of doubt in your own life. 
John Calvin once observed that all Christians are partly unbelievers until we die. So if you think about it, John's moment of doubt can actually be a source of comfort to us in our times of doubt. Now, before we unpack this fascinating passage, I think we first need to clear away a few misconceptions. The first idea we need to dispel is that prophets were holy men who were inspired in everything they said and did. If you still happen to hold this view, I'll recommend that you go back and read the book of Jonah at the end of this podcast. Another section of scripture that I think can be helpful in correcting this misconception are the words we find at the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, in which King David tells Nathan the prophet that he's decided to build God a permanent temple. If you recall that scene, Nathan initially responded to David by saying, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But then in verse 4, we're told that that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house? The Lord shall make you a house. Here God was hinting at the everlasting dynasty, which would be established for the house of David in the days of the Messiah. But this passage makes clear that Israel's prophets were fallible human instruments who only ended up speaking God's word on specific occasions. In my thinking, this helps to explain how we can find someone like John the Baptist making such bold and confident announcements about Jesus, while just a short time later, we find him questioning whether this same Jesus really is the one to come. Another misconception we need to address is the idea that faith is always, in and of itself, a good thing, and that on the other side, that doubt is always bad. According to the Bible, there is no value in faith itself, since faith is only as good as its object. A perfectly safe bridge will do no good to the one who lacks the faith to cross it. And on the other hand, all the faith in the world will not help the one who chooses to cross a bridge that is just about to collapse. Obviously, in that situation, exercising some level of doubt and skepticism would have been a good thing, particularly if there were signs that warranted caution, such as the accumulation of rust or the fact that the bridge had begun to sway. According to Proverbs 14.15, the simple man believes everything, but the wise man gives thought to his steps. In other words, we shouldn't easily believe every idea or claim, which means that in order to be wise, we need to exercise some level of discernment, which of course involves doubt. Last year on the podcast, I dove a little bit into doubt. We talked to my friend Audrey, who went through a period of doubt, and we talked about basic things like the importance of the resurrection and all of that. That's Sarah Beth Capusta, host of Reconstructing Your Faith, which is a podcast designed to help those who, like her, happen to be raised in a cult where questions were off limits and doubt was a sin. It always sounds so weird to me when I call it a cult because it feels so dramatic, but it really was a cult. What I grew up with was blind faith. Basically, when I left and was shunned and everything crumbled in my life, and I mean everything, I had to ask a lot of questions. Am I a Christian just because I had to be, just because my parents were? Is any of this real? Is this just made up so that people can control you? And because I was in such a high control group, when I left, I was declared that I wasn't saved and that I was in rebellion against God. And being shunned by friends and family and the only life I'd ever known was really shocking and brought instability in my faith. So some of the things we learned 
Lyrics is a catchphrase that we heard a lot. You don't need to understand. You need to stand under. We didn't get to ask questions. And the more extreme our blind allegiance was, we were better Christians. I really was terrified because I had doubts. I was actually scared because I had doubts and I felt like I had to keep those secret. A friend of mine recently told me when she was in the cult, she said she asked the pastor's wife, what am I supposed to do with my doubts and questions about theology and our faith? And the pastor's wife told her she should repent because doubt and questions are unbelief and that's sin. Faith was measured by how blind it was. school. And there I learned to start thinking logically. And that is the beginning of the threads for me unraveling, getting out of the cult and asking questions. And it's a long, long, long story. But here we are today. And over the years, I've learned a lot about what true faith is and what our faith is all about as Christians, what's important. That clip was from episode 19 of the Reconstructing Your Faith podcast, and I happen to appear as a guest on that program. So if you'd like to listen to that entire episode, I'll provide a link in the show notes. In my thinking, Sarah Beth's background actually helps to illustrate the importance of doubt. In her case, asking questions and beginning to doubt much of what she was taught in her youth was actually the road to her own spiritual recovery. Of course, you may be thinking that this sort of thing is important for others to do particularly those who have been brought up in cults and alternative religions. But how are we to know whether the worldview we were raised with happens to be true in contrast to other competing options, unless we begin to ask questions? Now, with these things in mind, let's take a closer look at the larger context in which John the Baptist begins to question his faith. John, you may recall, had been imprisoned by Herod, and this fact happens to be confirmed by the Jewish historian Josephus. Here's what he writes. John, who was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Now when others came to him in crowds who were greatly moved by his words, Herod, who feared that John might raise a rebellion because of his great influence over the people, thought it best to prevent any mischief he might cause. Accordingly, he was sent a prisoner to the fortress called Machiris and was there put to death. It's interesting to me that Josephus went on to name the specific location of John's imprisonment and later execution, since this particular fact happens to be unmentioned by all four gospel writers. And as it turns out, Machiris was a well-known fortress that was located on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and the remains of this fortress are still visible to this day. John the Baptist had his head chopped off on the top of this mountain. This was a palace of Herod, and uh, he was here as a prisoner. And they chopped his head off here. One of the greatest prophets ever lived. So I'm just thinking, John the Baptist's friends, they came from here to see Jesus. Like, 
come back to Sunday Baptist to report back. So while John was in prison, John's disciples visited him and told him about all that Jesus had been doing throughout the region. But after languishing for a while behind bars, John, it seems, was no longer his old self. And so rather than responding with joy to all that he was hearing, John decided to send two of his disciples to Jesus in order to ask whether he really was Israel's promised Messiah. Now, when these two disciples eventually caught up with Jesus, they found him healing many people of their diseases and infirmities. And after relaying John's question, Jesus responded to them by saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In his response, Jesus is not only reminding John what his disciples have seen with their own eyes, but he uses specific language that reminds him of some of the ancient prophecies related to Israel's coming Messiah. In other words, his response appears to rest primarily on two things. First, Jesus' response rests on the authenticity of eyewitness accounts. You see, though John may have had trouble believing what he was hearing about Jesus through the grapevine, the reports of these two witnesses would be difficult to dismiss. These are disciples who have been regularly visiting him in prison and who are currently standing in front of him. John not only knows these men, but he trusts them deeply. And so when they reported to him all that they saw and heard Jesus doing, this was extremely credible and reliable testimony. Secondly, as his disciples reported the specific words that Jesus relayed to John, he certainly would have picked up on the very clear allusions to the ancient messianic prophecies. The point, therefore, was inescapable very credible men have just witnessed the fulfillment of what Isaiah and other prophets foretold about the coming Messiah. This is how Jesus chose to comfort John in the midst of his doubt. He didn't focus John inward, but directed his attention outward to recent events seen and heard by trustworthy eyewitnesses and to the words recorded by the ancient Hebrew prophets. He didn't shame John for asking questions, but furnished him with solid evidence designed to rekindle his faith. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? As you reflect on the specific words of John's question, you soon discover that there's actually nothing impious at all to be found here. Granted, it's somewhat surprising that we find this question on the lips of the world's greatest prophet, but at the end of the day, it's still just a question. The most important thing you need to remember about this particular scene from Luke 7 is that John the Baptist was never rebuked for questioning his faith. Instead, Jesus took this as an opportunity to redirect John's focus away from his personal experience to things that had recently been seen by trustworthy and reliable witnesses and which had also been foreseen by Israel's prophets.
As you know, I recently had the opportunity to talk with Greg Kokel of Stand a Reason, and one part of that conversation you haven't yet heard relates to this scene here in Luke chapter 7 with John the Baptist. Now, in the first part of the clip you're about to hear, Greg refers to an article I wrote titled On Faith and Doubt, which explores this scene from Luke 7 in some detail. If you'd like to read this piece, I've added a link to it in the show notes. But in the second part of that article, I discuss the implications of Jesus' concluding line, Blessed are those who are not offended by me, which is something that Greg wished to highlight in his initial remarks. One of the things that strikes me about this passage, Greg, is that though John appears to be doubting, Jesus nowhere rebukes him for his doubt, but instead simply provides him with clear and unmistakable evidence that he really is Israel's promised Messiah. Do you agree with that? That's right. It's a very good observation, and I think he's a, uh, John is a great case lesson, so to speak. I actually read your piece on this. It comes in two parts, and there was something in the second part that I was missing in the first one, and I was scratching my head wondering if you had caught this, but you caught it. Even though he's not rebuked, he is chastised a little bit. And Mm -hmm. quite frankly, this morning, as I was reflecting on what you wrote, I was thinking about my my own life and certain unanswered prayers or whatever, and Mm. it it was really helpful to me. So I just, my thanks, Shane, to your contribution (laughs) to my spiritual state of mind for today, at least, you know, because (laughs) what we have, obviously, is things were not going the way John expected them to go. He was not living his uh, best life now. (laughs) No, that's right. Not that he expected things to go well, but things are going a whole lot worse than he thought. And now he's in prison, and it's not looking good, and he's discouraged. And it's it's a good picture, not just a it's a, it's an account of what happens to us frequently. Things don't go the way we expect. Here was Jesus supposedly to release the captives and the oppressed, right? Yeah. Well, John had an idea what that meant. And even nowadays, when people read that, they think in more political terms about that. But when Peter talks about how Jesus released the oppressed, he says he released them from the oppression of the devil. It's not a, it wasn't a political thing that Jesus had in mind at all. So here is John, you know, wondering, well, should I expect another? And this is what actually served my needs this morning as I was reflecting on it, because not everybody gets that kind of relief. There is certainly a a setting free of the prisoners, but I I actually think that Jesus was speaking in a spiritual sense there because he did not campaign for emptying the jails or whatever. But I can see why John would see it that way because of the the notions that almost everybody had of what Messiah would accomplish. And this is his own disciples. In fact, Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is ascending, they ask, is now the time? that you're going to, you know, do the thing that we're expecting you to do. And he said, man, that's not your business. I got my own timing. Here's what I want you to do. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. So they got their marching orders. And the church has been marching for 2,000 years, waiting for the rest of the story, as it were. But uh, in uh, John's case, though, John the Baptist, he gets a very generous response from Jesus. Here, you tell John, this is what's happening. Not only theological substance, the poor get the gospel preached to them, but the dead are raised, and the the blind are given sight, and the the lame are healed, etc., etc. So he is talking about theological verities that are substantiated by physical miracles. Now, here's the part that a lot of people miss, but you picked up in the second half of your piece. Thankfully, it was really good. 
he doesn't rebuke John for doubting. And that's great. That's a very good lesson because everybody doubts. And there's a reason why doubt is good. And maybe we can talk about that in a minute. You talk about it in your piece, and I agree with you. But he did chastise a little bit at the end. A little bit. Because he says, and blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Yeah. Gee, what's going on there? And and what struck me as I've read this many times is that Jesus is saying, you have your preconceived notions about how it's supposed to go. Okay. I'm in charge. Yeah. Providence is my business. Yes. There you go. Yeah. And if you think of the end of John chapter six, the bread of life discourse and how things that Jesus said there really bothered so many people that massive numbers left him. And Jesus said to the apostles, are you going to go too? He wasn't begging them to stay. He's just wondering what's up. And Peter speaks for the group and he says, where are we going to go? Well, you have the words that give eternal life. Yep. It's almost like he's saying, well, we don't like this any better than anybody else, but what are the alternatives? We know you're the guy. You're going to say things that we don't get, we don't understand, don't make sense to us, we don't even like, but that doesn't change who you are. Yeah. So there's my paraphrase, my creative paraphrase, but I think that's the sense of what's going on there. And I think that's the sense of the modest chastisement that Jesus is not only giving John the Baptist, but also providing for us. So when I look at my own life, I say, wait a minute, I'm kind of like a more or less faithful servant. You know, why am I in what I'm in? And I cannot pray myself out of this very challenging circumstance. And Jesus says, the lame are healed, the blind see, and the poor get the gospel preached to them. And blessed are those, Greg, who do not stumble over me. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I guess I'm not in charge. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way Peter kind of responds to Jesus at the end of John's gospel, where he gets the future revealed before it happens. You know, they, when mm -hmm. at the end of your life, Peter, they're going to stretch out your yeah. arms and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And Peter's yeah. like, I don't think he yet agreed with the idea that you should rejoice in your sufferings. I think you, he was yeah, like, well, right. what about this guy? <laughs> what about yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. There's a line in Lewis's Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia, that uh, it's actually a, a, a theme there when children in the stories uh, don't quite do what's right. They have to be chastised privately by Aslan. And the same kind of thing repeats itself because sometimes the one being chastised is saying, well, what about him or her? And Aslan says, I'm not talking about them right yeah. now. I'm talking about you. What matters right now is you and me, not me and them. So uh, those are all very, very rich lessons that are built into those accounts, not just Lewis. Lewis is reflecting scripture, like we're talking about with John the Baptist, that we can trade on confidently in the challenges that we face in our life. Do you think there's a lesson here for us that we should be gracious to those in our churches or our families who do end up struggling with doubts of various kinds? As you reflect on the way Jesus was, you know, he didn't say to John, you know better than to ask a question yeah. like that, John. Yeah. What What's interesting is those disciples, when they were with Jesus prior to their the completion of the discipleship and their experience with the Spirit in uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts there, they were kind of like that. The Samaritans weren't, you know, cooperating. Hey, shall we call down fire from heaven yeah. on these characters? You know, Jesus said, hey, leave them alone, you know. But um, later on, we do see the grace that's shown. And I'm trying to remember the passage. It's either like First Thessalonians, maybe it's in Jude, 
but it says, be patient with those who doubt. Um, encourage the faint-hearted, I think is First Thessalonians 5, but there's another passage that speaks specifically to the doubters, and it's to be gentle with them. Mm. This is one of the things that I so appreciate about, about what I get to do in offering reasons for people putting their confidence in Christ and the broader worldview that he represents, is because when I see people are doubting about particular things, I can come in there and say, well, you're kind of missing something that it might help you to know, and then I can provide some of these thoughts. So that's just another way of comforting those who doubt and not disparaging them. And unfortunately, you know this, Shane, this is not the pattern in churches. Right. Kids characteristically are encouraged not to ask questions, not to raise issues, The reason, I think, is because the adults are embarrassed that they can't speak to them, Mm -hmm. so they tell the kids essentially to shut up, and that will not work because they're going to meet somebody else that's going to give them some other answers to their question, and they're going to be the wrong answers, and that's the direction they'll end up going. You know, some people ask me why I chose to name my new podcast The Humble Skeptic, you know, because typically you hear the word skeptic, skeptical in non-Christian context. But, you know, I actually tell them that I think the Bible encourages a kind of healthy skepticism. You know, you have passages like uh, the simple man believes everything, but the wise man Mm -hmm. gives thought to his steps, Proverbs Proverbs 14, uh, or test all things, but hold on to the good and do not believe every spirit because there are many false prophets. First John, it's interesting when John says that, right after that, he gives an objective test because he's dealing with, uh, you, you know, a Gnosticism in its early stages, mm-hmm. which denies the goodness of the material world, which means that Jesus, if he's God, he can't be a he- real human. And so when John says to test the spirits, he says, for any spirit that does not confess that Jesus, Messiah, has come in the flesh is not of God. So there is a specific objective test that is offered. It's not some kind of hocus pocus like discerning, oh, that's not good. No, Mm -hmm. he gives an objective test there. And so, yeah, we're enjoined to think about those things. I, I sometimes run into people who say, I have an unshakable faith. I said, but if your faith is false, that means you have an unshakable delusion. Mm -hmm. So how do you know that your unshakable faith is not in something's false? And this is why, and, and you wrote about this in your piece, why why skepticism and doubting has a, a you know silver lining. Sometimes it's depressing, but it can force a person to press on further right. if they have the means to do that. And uh, if they don't, I just want to say str.org. That's right. Yeah, good stuff <laughs> <at> there. All. <laughs> uh, then they can get the answers. And maybe some aspects of their convictions are not well justified. Maybe they're false. Maybe they're askew in some way. And so what we want to do is we want to tighten those things down a little bit. Had they not been afflicted, so to speak, by the doubt, they would not have tightened up their truth project the way they ended up doing. I like the way you said, uh, you know, you refer to the passage in First John about whoever believes in the Christ that he has become in the flesh. And you said the Messiah, you know, changing that up right. a bit helps us to see, okay, Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. It's the Messiah. What does That's that mean? Right. That means the one promised in these Old Testament scriptures is has been seen in the flesh. So what you have mm-hmm. are promises that are seen right. by eyewitnesses. And that's exactly what Jesus himself does to John the Baptist. He says to the two disciples, John's closest disciples, go back and tell John what you've seen with your eyes today, what I've been doing. 
so it's based on eyewitness testimony that Jesus is real. He's there in, in the flesh. And how does he say it? that the blind see, the dead are raised? The way that Jesus says this is alluding to all these Old Testament promises and prophecies. Right. And mm-hmm. so when I look at the book of Acts, this is exactly what they're doing. They're saying, we are witnesses. We've seen Jesus fulfill these prophecies. Uh-huh. Look at the famous creed from 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus came, he's seen by witnesses according to the scriptures. This right. seems to be the, the major way that early Christians were communicating the truth of their, of their story to the world. And I'm wondering if you think that that's kind of a neglected emphasis. Yeah, you see that the reference to the event that they witnessed, and with that, a reference to the text that predicted the event yeah. that they witnessed happening. And uh, look at Jesus uh, on the road to Emmaus there in the end of Luke, mm-hmm. and he's already resurrected. They, For whatever reason, these disciples didn't recognize him at first. He, he actually, I think, obscured that from them. And they're shaking their heads, what do we believe now? He said, this has all been predicted. And it's not just been here or there, but he mentions all the sections of, you know, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, you know, and everywhere there are these references. But notice, like you said, he's going back to the original text and saying, this is just carrying out the story that's been in play from the beginning. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to talk with Elisa Childers about her experience with doubt, which began shortly after she and her husband decided to attend a progressive church. She wrote a book about her experience titled Another Gospel. Basically, everything I'd ever believed about God and Jesus and the Bible was challenged from an intellectual perspective. It was basically deconstructed, picked apart. It was really rattling for my own faith because I didn't know where to look for answers. I didn't know there were people out there who had literally been spending 2,000 years answering all these questions. And it sent me into a really dark time of doubt. And essentially what happened was the Lord used apologetics to help rebuild my faith after a really intense time of doubt. And so that book basically chronicles Uh, that journey that I took of going to that progressive church, going through doubt, and then coming back out of it. You've written that Jesus' attitude towards John the Baptist in his moment of doubt was actually a source of comfort to you in the midst of your doubt. Talk about that. You know, I mean, when you think about John, there's probably nobody in the Bible that would have more reason to be confident. John the Baptist is the guy that heard the audible voice of God, saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, and physically touched the Son of God and baptized him, like the Holy Trinity right there with all of his senses. And even he doubted. He starts to kind of waver, it seems, in the text that he's wavering a bit. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we ask for another? That's right. And I think that gives us a good picture of Jesus' attitude towards doubt because he could have said, oh, John, just have faith. You know, where's your faith, John? Jesus' attitude toward him was more to give evidence, reminding him of the miracles that were achieved and the the ancient prophecies that he was fulfilling, knowing what that John would understand what those prophecies meant. Yeah, particularly it's how those prophecies matched what had happened in Jesus' you know ministry. Exactly. And so he was giving John clues that really landed more in the evidence kind of category. What John needed was reassurance. He needed some reconfirmation, right? He needed just to just double check what he believed and what he knew was true. And Jesus was actually happy to oblige that. He was happy to offer him evidence. Um, he really could have scolded John, but he didn't do that. He was very tender. 
uh, with John about that. And I think that's something that I've always think about when we go through times of doubt is that, you know, we know the heart of Jesus is tender toward us if it's honest doubt. Now, you know, I think it's good to make a distinction between honest doubt and dishonest doubt, because a lot of people use the word doubt when really what they mean is they're looking for justification for the unbelief that's already there. They're looking for an exit. They, they're already out the door and they're just looking for reasons to justify the unbelief that's already there. But, you know, honest doubt would be somebody who wants to know what's true. They genuinely want to know what's true. They want to line up what they believe with reality, and they're going to follow that where it goes. And I think that, you know, God's approach to honest doubt, even in Jude, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. And that's why, you know, I wrote in my book, too, that I don't think that faith and doubt are opposites. I actually think they work together because you can't doubt something unless you believe it or else you would just be unbelieving that thing. But if you believe something and then you sort of doubt that belief, well, what do you do? Well, you you do some checkups like, okay, well, is do I believe the right thing? And if I don't believe the right thing, I'm going to reject that belief. But I want to double check and make sure that what I believe is right, make sure it's true in reality. Whereas I think the actual opposite of faith would be unbelief. But uh, doubt, questioning something, double-checking things, making sure what you believe is true, even, you know, that deep wrestling that can happen. I think all of that can happen in a very healthy way. In fact, I think it's important for all of us to take our beliefs and go, okay, why do I believe this is really true? Yeah, especially when you compare it with all the other possible beliefs, you know, exactly. uh, the other possible worldviews. It's like, well, am I, am I crazy or is this really true? How do I know it's true in comparison with all the other ideas out there on the, in the marketplace of ideas? Exactly. And I think that's what gave me the confidence to say, okay, I can dig into these doubts and I can search for evidence. I have permission from Jesus to do that, to go for the evidence. I think all of that can happen in a very healthy way to make us actually stronger and more mature. Kind of like the character in Mark's gospel who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yes. Well, that's where I was at when I was in faith crisis. In fact, that that line perfectly describes my darkest you know, my darkest time, because I was like that father, this father whose son is possessed. And and he comes to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's almost like these two contradictory statements, but they're really not because it's like his honest heart. I do believe, help me, help me to believe, help my unbelief, help me overcome that, you know, and that should be, I think, our prayer in our darkest times. Now, at one point at your time in the progressive church, your pastor asked people attending his class why they believed that the Bible was God's word. Talk to us about your experience on that occasion. Right. So this was the big question he asked. How do you know, first of all, how many people believe the Bible is the word of God? Of course, I raised my hand and maybe a couple others did. or I think maybe just one other person did. And then he asked the other person, why do you think um, the Bible is the word of God? And she said something along the lines of, well, I just feel it in my heart. And then he said, well, that's very interesting that you would word it that way because I have a Muslim friend and he describes the Quran the same way. And I realized in that moment, I better figure out why I believe that the Bible is the word of God, because it's not going to be enough to just say it's because I just know that it is, or even to say that it's worked for me. I mean, I could, I could say the Bible has worked for me my whole life, but there are people who are going to say that about the Book of Mormon and about the Quran and other holy books, and they're going to say this has worked very well for me. In fact, Mormons are some of the most family-oriented, nice people you'll ever meet, but that doesn't mean that their worldview is rooted in truth. And so um, that's when that became very serious for me to discover, okay, what are the reasons that I actually have 
that match reality that I can say that I believe this book is God's word. And it was, it was a, it was one of those moments where somebody says something and I just see my worldview crumbling right in front of my mm. eyes. And I don't know yeah. what I'm going to do, but I knew that I couldn't just do nothing. I had to dig in and I had to figure it out. You say that one of the main reasons that young people leave the faith today is that they've never felt like they had a safe place to wrestle with or to express their doubts. What do you think the church needs to do to address this problem? Right. You know, this is something that I had to learn kind of later because I, to be honest, I didn't experience that. When I was growing up, I felt like I could have asked my parents any question. I actually felt like I could have asked my youth pastors any question. I just didn't think of the questions, honestly. But if I would have had some real skeptical question about the Bible, I believe I could have gone to any of my youth pastors or my parents and, and asked them that question. But I've since learned a lot of stories of people who they did ask questions and they were told, well, you know, we don't ask those kind of questions yeah. here or you shouldn't doubt, you know, doubt is a sin and we don't do that. And that's a sign of weak faith or something like that. And so I think one thing churches can do is a take apologetics more seriously. Mm -hmm. Apologetics is not going to cure every person who's doubting because a lot of people doubt for different reasons. But if someone's doubt is intellectual as mine was, mine was purely intellectual. I needed the facts. And that's what helped me. Uh, but we also need to be really smart about diagnosing where people are coming from yeah. and provide those places where they can. we can get to the bottom of the what's under the question and what where is this question actually coming from? Are you really doubting the reliability of the Bible or do you kind of want to capitulate to culture on morality so you're yeah. looking for a loophole? And if we can diagnose those things in the church in a place where we can provide these open spaces for conversation, I think that that can be done. And so I think there's a way the church can do it where we're still pointing people toward truth, but but allowing them to work this stuff out without reacting in fear. But uh, this is the challenge to the church, though. The only way to be able to respond to someone's skeptical questions without fear is if you have studied it. Right. If you don't know the answer, that's when you react in fear. I think we have to take our faith more seriously from an intellectual perspective, especially youth pastors. They need to be the best apologist in the church. Folks, the Christian faith isn't merely a set of spiritual ideas that, once applied, can help you to live to your full potential. That's the way most religions and self-help programs are often promoted. No, at the very heart of Christianity is a truth claim. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. These are claims that either happened or didn't. And if they didn't happen, Christianity is meaningless and your faith is in vain. But if it's true that Jesus lived and suffered, that he died in our place and rose again on the third day, then Christianity has profound meaning, whether we believe it or not. Folks, thanks for being with me for this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. For more information about this program, head to HumbleSkeptic.com, where you'll get access to other episodes and various articles that I've written, including one on the topic of doubt that I've been addressing on this program. I've also provided a link to that article in the show notes section of this episode. Please remember that The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast. You can support this show by upgrading to a paid subscription via Substack or by putting a little something in the tip jar. Also, if you'd like your gift to be tax-deductible, that option is now available, and you can find information about this and other giving options in the show notes. Thanks so much, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time on The Humble Skeptic Podcast as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Thank you.
When you believe something, you know it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to have physical evidence. You just know it. That's what believing in faith is to me. Do you think it's like an internal feeling, like closer to what the Mormons say, that it's a burning in the bosom? Uh, I would say it's some similar to that. Um, so I'd love to get your take on this. There's a scene in Luke 7 where John the okay. Baptist starts to doubt. Yeah. All right. And he sends two of his disciples to Jesus and says, go ask him, are you really the one? He's the same guy that preached the sermon, Behold the Lamb, right? Yeah. And he's called the best prophet who ever lived. How can a prophet begin to doubt? Well, I think it's easy for anyone to doubt, right? I mean, But wouldn't he just know? Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, Then how did he doubt? I, don't, I, I mean, it's a good question. But, I mean, with anything we do, there's doubt. Yeah. With anything we do. With, uh, there's been many times in my life, even as a Christian, many of us Christians, you know, feel this, like, uh, that doubt. Right, that doubt, like maybe, maybe you have that thought in the back of your head. 